Adult content intended for an adult audience only. All characters engaging in sexual relationships or activities are 18 years old or older. Contains explicit words, thoughts, and ideas. This story was found on a free website and brought to audio form here. I did not write and take no credit for this story. Please visit the link above to further support this writer. Blue Topaz Eyes by Todd172 She had the brightest blue topaz eyes I'd ever seen. Almost clear, a perfect pale blue, even in the dim light. They flashed furiously as she struggled to free herself from my grip and my weight as I pinned her to the rough asphalt, her dark curly hair spread out in an lush fan. Her skirt was ten feet away next to the matching yellow purse where I'd thrown them. Her blouse hung in shreds and the plastic front snap on her brow was broken, leaving it hanging off of her as an irrelevant scrap of blue lace. What modesty she had left was only preserved by a matching pair of light blue lace thong panties nearly the same color as her eyes. That modesty wasn't going to survive long. As soon as I could trap both her wrists in one hand, I planned to rip the waistband through and tear them off her. It was, honestly, proving to be difficult. She was stronger than she looked, and she wasn't wasting her breath screaming for help. Instead she had sunk her teeth into my right forearm. I'd managed to tear it free in a spray of blood that spattered both of us, then had to fight to recapture her wrist. Her second bite attempt bought her an elbow to the mouth that split her lip. More blood, hers now, mixing with mine. I'd made pretty good progress on my initial attack, catching her guarded, but uncertain in the darkness of the empty lot, dimly lit by a distant, dying, streetlight. I'd yanked the heavy purse from her arm, no point in risking a gun or pepper spray and ripped the skirt off in almost one motion, zipper teeth flying everywhere, while bearing her to the ground. i pinning her down, working my body between her legs. Despite her small size, maybe 110 pounds total, she was in very good shape and, as it turned out, she was a fighter. We locked eyes for an instant, just a fraction of a second, and at that moment, I saw a slight smile curve her lips. I could feel myself grow hard against her between her legs, she clearly noticed, eyes widening as she hissed in renewed fury. Then everything went wrong. She snapped her teeth at my right arm again, and when I tried to arch it out of the way, her trap left wrist shot straight out, dragging my grip with it. Then she drove her right knee into my left hip. I was instantly overbalanced. I might have recovered, but I had to stretch my left leg out to compensate, and she promptly drove her knee into my groin. The world exploded in pain and stars of brilliant white light, as I felt her tear free of my grip. I kept rolling to my right, trying to gain distance to get to my feet. Her nails raked at my eyes, but I was moving too fast and had shut my eyes tightly against the pain. A fortunate accident more than anything else. Even as I got to my hands and knees I heard rushing feet and felt three rapid-fire sledgehammer impacts into my side. Ribs cracked and snapped under the blows. It almost seemed impossible for a person her size to deliver that kind of power in a kick. I rolled again using the force of her third kick, but this time I kicked my own legs out in a hard sweep, feeling it slam into her legs. I heard her slam into the ground as I rolled to my feet. Even so, as I locked eyes on her, she was already up in the easy, upright, bouncy stance of a taekwondo practitioner. That at least explained those brutal kicks. I dropped into a lower, more grounded, shotokan combat stance. She was covered in beads of sweat and blood, mouth open, panting with exertion, chest heaving, her small brown nipples crinkled by the cool air. She seemed to be favoring her left leg, so I stepped to circle to the injured side for a better attack angle. A klaxon blasted, jarring both of us. I straightened up and dropped my hands to my sides, watching out of the corner of my to make sure she did the same. She did. Watching me. Lights! Illumination grew as the grim, gray ponytailed instructor walked over from the jersey barriers that circled the asphalt training floor. I could see tier two students staring wide-eyed from outside the barriers. They were filing in from an observation room. The training floor was asphalt and gravel, roughly the size of a basketball court. A row of cars sat parked along one edge. Agent. She turned more toward him wordlessly, still keeping check on me out of the corner of her eye. I know he outweighs you, but when you force dismount him, you have to follow, keep your hip into his inner thigh. Gaining positive control from the superior position is the goal of that move. As you found out, even a solid strike to the groin isn't necessarily disabling if your opponent has a high pain threshold. You really should have taken the option to flee when faced with an opponent who is this much bigger and stronger. Still. Passed. Sergeant. I half turned to him as well, still tracking her cautiously. Good initial attack, and rolling out of the dismount was a good choice, but you should have thrown the sweep the first time. That would have saved you some broken ribs. Passed. End exercise. End of training. Green lights lit at that command and tension fell off us both. He turned and walked off back to the T2 students. The men were openly gawking at my thong-clad opponent, while the women glared at me with a mixture of horror and revulsion. The agent staggered a bit as she tried to step off. She almost fell, but caught herself, barely staying upright. I peeled off my sweat-and-blood-soaked t-shirt and extended it to her. She nodded tersely and took it, dropping her shredded shirt and brought to the ground before pulling it on, bouncing lightly on her one good foot. It made a pretty good mini-dress on her. It was more to protect her from getting the chills than for modesty, if, in fact, she had any modesty left after Junior Woodchuck, Outdoor Survival. Alibis and Lies Covers and legends, and advanced beatings, counter-interrogation, classes. Infirmary? I asked. She nodded, then wiped her bleeding lip on the collar of the t-shirt. I can't walk at all. I don't think anything is broke, but it won't support my weight for a while. The sweep? She nodded again. Probably a bad bone bruise. Damn good thing this is my last day. 
I can carry you there if we keep your weight on my right side. I need my ribs bound anyway. She nodded again. Social pleasantries like, thank you, and please, were firmly discouraged here, part of keeping students from getting to know each other. I knew she was a federal police officer of some kind, BATF, FBI, or DA, maybe because he had addressed her as, agent. Likewise she knew I was with military intelligence as I was addressed as, sergeant. Civilians from intelligence agencies like CIA were generally addressed as, officer. Names weren't used here at all. The female T2 students watched in shock and disbelief as she let me gently pick her up and even more so when she draped an arm around my neck. They didn't understand. They weren't field operatives, they were just being given familiarization on how we trained here. Where was, here? That would be a bit problematic. Suffice to say that it was somewhere east of the Mississippi. Maybe. It didn't really have a name, just an ever-changing alphanumeric designator. So, in the irreverent tradition of spooks and spies everywhere, it went by several names, St. Tristan's Academy for Wayward Girls and Wicked Boys, Mistress Dominique's Emporium of Pain, and most commonly, Antisocial Behavior 101. The schooling consisted of several classes geared to teach things not covered in a standard college curriculum students were given a course of instruction based on their mission set. The ones I knew of were Mayhem Unarmed Combat General Mayhem Small Group Unarmed Combat I did not attend this as I deployed alone. Sneaking Counter Surveillance Wreck and Ruin Defensive and Offensive Driving Gee Mr. Wizard Improvised Weapons and Explosives Junior Woodchuck Outdoor Survival Alibis and Lies Covers and Legends Advanced Beatings Counter Interrogation Goat bones and chicken blood. Technical surveillance. What we had just finished was the final exercise for. No means no. A comprehensive anti-rape training set for female operatives. Rape is understandably a big fear for many female operatives working undercover, and the class was designed specifically to at least partially counter that. For the final scenario, male students who had completed. Mayhem. Well above standard were selected at aggressors. We'd been given very specific instruction, and some training, for the scenario to make it as terrifying and as real as possible. We were matched with female students as much as possible to magnify the fear based on their psych profile. Sound horrifying yet? It should. Actually, it's meant to. There are only half a dozen female operatives in training at any time, and it was simple to have them report to the admin office from the Erzatz restaurant where they were finishing a cover exercise, what is more harmless than a waitress. The easiest route was across the apparently empty, darkened, training room. After six months of training, they wouldn't be completely unguarded, but they'd never even been told there was a final exercise for. No means no. The only warning they had was when the red. Exercise begin. Warning light kicked on with its accompanying klaxon, which also signaled the aggressor to attack. Even the gaudy yellow and red waitress uniform, with its too short skirt and flimsy blouse was intended to make them feel vulnerable, and to signal all instructors that the exercise was underway. It also ensured that the aggressors weren't accidentally triggered against a lost T2 student. And the aggressors were encouraged to be very aggressive, we could fail the exercise as easily as the female operatives. Anything short of actual penetration was allowed, even encouraged. For us, this was the last exercise of the last class. The male students departed this evening and the female students would leave the following day, both after a careful screening interview. We didn't talk as I carried her down the hall, it just wasn't done here. It was a short trip someone had wisely designed the building so that the infirmary was on the same floor as the unarmed combat training room. Personnel got hurt here. A lot. There were no pads or mats on the training floor, knives were blunt, but metal, guns fired reduced load rubber bullets that hurt like hell. We didn't write greeting cards for a living and everything here was intended to inculcate that. The few personnel we passed simply ignored us, weird clothing and injuries were hardly unusual here. As I walked into the infirmary, the nurse simply said, Room 3. So I carried my charge into the room and set her on the exam table as carefully as possible, although she still winced as her weight settled. Then I sat down in a side chair. Somewhere nearby, muffled sobbing filtered through the walls. She listened for a second, her blue eyes flickering around the room. Quietly, someone failed. I nodded, I'd guess. There was a long pause. Finally, without looking up, she asked, So what was up with the hard-on? I had been so hoping she wasn't going to mention that. In six and a half months, the most meaningful human contact I've had was getting waterboarded in advanced beatings. A pretty girl with blue eyes, pretty much naked under me? I'm only human, this practically qualified as a romantic evening out, considering. I get that, I mean why only toward the end? A girl could take that as an insult. I laughed. I'm not into rape. Doesn't do a thing for me. But when you smiled, probably thinking about how you were planning on smashing my balls, I knew that you knew it wasn't real. She actually smiled at me. I really got my head straight when I got my teeth into your arm. That was when I really accepted that it was another training scenario. When I smiled it was because the thought struck me that if I stopped struggling, I might actually get laid for the first time in half a year. Hell, if I'd have just waited another 30 seconds to throw the dismount, I'd have had an orgasm. I wonder how the instructors would have handled that. Probably would have criticized our technique. She snickered. I can hear it now, agent. You need to put more power into your thrusts and your angle needs improvement. She buried her face in her hands as she fought to suppress her laughter, not entirely successfully, which had me fighting to do the same. Then she looked up at me, tears of laughter streaming from her eyes. Can you imagine the T2 students? At that point we both lost it, and it took a while to catch our breath. Before we could continue our conversation, a slightly harried doctor breathed in and began to examine her, which resulted in her being handed a pair of crutches. He also put a wrap on my ribs, 
mostly to stabilize them so they wouldn't hurt as much. As usual, he didn't bother with pain meds for either of us, just some anti-inflammatories. Once in the main hall, as we turned and headed in different directions, she looked me in the eye and smiled. I watched her disappearing form and pondered the heat and moisture I had felt from her during the exercise, and against my arm as I carried her to the infirmary. I was pretty sure now it hadn't been all sweat. It only dawned on me as I got on the plane later that she still had my t-shirt. Two years later. The division chief, Donna, had called me off of a well-earned leave with instructions to come into the office immediately. So I headed in, unshaved, wearing sandals, shorts, and a Joe's Crab Shack t-shirt. As soon as I stepped past her secretary and into the conference room, I saw the his and hers suits with standard-issue government filler seated at her table looking at me expectantly. Deliberately ignoring them, I turned to Donna. What's with Mulder and Scully here? Please tell me this isn't an assist to the Phoebes. She shot a glance at the two, who were looking me over with obvious distaste. Long-term covert surveillance, they'll be in charge. This is coming down from the director. We have to play ball. They need the language and tech capability. I rubbed the bridge of my nose and closed my eyes for a second. Donna, completely aside from my personal feelings about this, look at them. They might as well have FB fucking I, stamped on their foreheads. Anyone with a traffic ticket is probably running from the building right now. There is no way a cover operation using these two will work. The woman was glowering at me while the guy was trying to compose himself. Donna looked at me with exasperation, but she had to know this was coming. The female agent finally spoke. What's your damn problem? I yanked the side of my t-shirt up to expose the bullet scars on my side. Last time I played with you guys, one of your agents went all law and order cowboy and got three of us shot up, including himself. I recovered his gun and settled the issue, and in return your agency wanted to prosecute me based on my failure to follow instructions. I wasn't supposed to have a gun, so apparently, when he went down, I was supposed to just die in place. And if he would have waited 30 minutes like I told him to, the local LEOs would have helped take the ring down, and there would have been no problems. But he didn't want to share the fucking credit. She paused, glancing at her partner. To him she said, I told you that report looked odd. Back to me. I'm hardly going to go undercover. Executive assistant directors rarely do. For the record, I'm the one that squashed the intent to prosecute. The report just smelled wrong. Look, we brought an agent who is just as skittish about using untested military assets as you are of working with us. If the two of you give the operation a no-go, we'll look at different options. I bit my tongue and nodded rather than reply. An executive assistant director, EAD, at the FBI was a little higher up the food chain than even I was prepared to tell to fuck off. Donna was looking a little too smug. We'd have to discuss this one later. A second later, the door opened behind me and a female voice started. Ma'am, the tech looks good. If they just train me on the equipment, we don't need. As I turned, the voice drained away and she stood staring at me wide-eyed and mute. I was just as silent, lost in the impossible blue topaz eyes. She found her voice first. Sergeant. Agent. I could sense the confusion from Donna and the other FBI agents. It was about to get worse. I still have your t-shirt. Have your balls healed? Her eyes sparkled with amusement. Oh yeah, they're fine. How's your ass? As good as new. You can keep the t-shirt. I was never at Rutgers. Her lips curved in a cupid s bow. I was planning on keeping it. It's my favorite sleeping shirt. The blood never did really come out. I forgot to wash it in cold. Set the stains permanently. Donna arched one eyebrow at me in amusement. Friend of yours? Old school chum from St. Tristan's. The agent gave me a wicked smile. We had a very short, very intense, very, very physical relationship. I couldn't walk for a month. Two could play this game. I returned her smile. She broke my heart and my ribs. Her two supervisors looked confused and more than a little uncomfortable. The agent noticed and decided clarification might be a good idea. We were opponents in scenario-based individual combat training during a specialized course for undercover operatives a couple years ago. The male agent still looked lost, but the EAD nodded with comprehension. That course has a reputation for being rather brutally realistic. The dark-haired woman continued on to explain the scenario, although it sounded rather clinical and detached compared to my visceral and intense memories. At least she didn't mention the hard-on. Donna looked a little concerned. This may not work. I did my training there, too. I'm not sure how I'd handle trying to work with my former opponent. And it has been nearly ten years for me. The agent smiled. I'll be fine. Not that it wasn't terrifying at the time, but it was a training scenario and he was following his instructions. Donna looked impressed, then turned to me. So are you willing to do this? I nodded, reflexively watching the agent out of the corner of my eye. As long as we can work out the details to make sense, I'm willing to work with her. We generally have the same training and she keeps her head under pressure. Emma. Her name was Emma. And she was brilliant. She had done much of the planning for the operation and it didn't remotely resemble the usual cookie-cutter goat fucks that federal LEOs, law enforcement officers, usually came up with. Instead of surveillance vans disguised as telephone linemen or whatever, we were simply going to rent a house and work in the area. Emma had actually gotten her LPN license somewhere along the way and kept the license current. That way the FBI could put fake LPN documentation in a different name without taking risks that she would be over her head. With her working part-time at a low-cost women's health clinic on the edge of the neighborhood and me working as a substitute teacher for the high schools nearby, we had pretty good control over our schedules and ample time to work the target. We could hide in plain sight. Emma and I built our cover. We would present ourselves as newlyweds, who had spent six months apart because I had been teaching overseas to complete a scholarship requirement. 
The target was a Romanian neighborhood where the FBI had multiple tips that weapons were being smuggled to drug cartels and, more importantly to me, terrorist cells in the U.S. Important to me because the anti-terrorism rules allowed me to be seconded to the FBI as a technical asset as a linguist. Several tips led to the same neighborhood, but none of them named specific people. The court order request must have been spectacular, because we had almost carte blanche for the surveillance based on compelling need of the state. We'd have a suite of cell phone intercept equipment, parabolic microphones and a plethora of other equipment ranging from lipstick cameras to audio bugs disguised as all kinds of items that we spent the next four hours eagerly going over the framework for the operation, pretty much ignoring Donna and her supervisors to the point that they simply left us. Emma's attention to detail was spectacular. There were really only minor tweaks to be made, which was fortunate since we only had two weeks to launch. Since we'd be obvious on entry into the close-knit immigrant community, we decided to hide by making extra noise. The Friday before we moved in, I'd go through the neighborhood, leave notes on doors apologizing in advance for blocking the street with a rented moving van. When we arrived our car would have the residue of a badly scraped off, just married, soap writing. We'd have a half dozen men and women from both our agencies. Helping us move in. In reality they'd also be tech setting up equipment in the basement, an attic of the house. Emma would drop by the clinic where her cover job was, on the same day. It worked beautifully, as did the rest of the operation. Due to classification concerns you will be able to read all about it in 75 years. Or so. Suffice to say six very bad men and one confused woman with very poor judgment went to prison.as for Emma and I. It was six months of what can only be described as bliss. We meshed instantly. She was perfect, smart, beautiful, fun and understanding. We didn't even make a token effort to deny our mutual attraction. We were in bed together the first night. For the first month, I thought we were in lust, then I decided it must be mutual infatuation. By the fourth month, I was sure we were in love. We shared stories, about our childhood, about previous assignments. I told her about my two months in a Buddhist monastery hunting terrorist infiltration routes between long bouts of trying to stay awake during meditation practice. She told me about going undercover as a lesbian art dealer. Maybe a little too deep undercover since her and her, partner, ended up sleeping together a few times. After years at an all-girl boarding school, it was hardly new to Emma, but it was the first time for her partner who ended up leaving the bureau, taking the bar exam and was now living downtown with another woman that I bought her flowers, we went on picnics, and we had backyard barbecues with the neighbors. We even babysat for the neighbors on occasion. I could see Emma would be a perfect mom someday. It felt so real. But it wasn't that Emma's flaw was ambition. She wanted to succeed on her own, and nobody, nothing, was going to stop her. Her parents were very wealthy, not the kind of wealthy you are probably thinking of, way beyond that. She was essentially raised by elite boarding schools in Switzerland, and her entire childhood was one long training session to turn her into the ruthless shark lawyer her parents wanted to protect their business empire. She hated it. She hated every minute of boarding school, prep school, and while she excelled at law, she hated that too. So when she graduated, instead of joining her one of father's firms she promptly applied for the FBI. She was going to fight her way up on her own. Her parents ranted, raved, threatened, and finally disowned her. I in the end, that ambition was too much. I was in love and so was she, but there was no way she would give up her dream, she had invested too much in it. She couched it in as gentle terms as possible, saying that neither one of us could afford to make commitments at this point in our careers since it would mean leaving covert work. And covert work meant we couldn't even keep seeing each other on the side, we had to break it off cleanly. Besides, it was dangerous, the odds of one of us being killed or having our work follow us home was far too high. She was adamant. It saddened her as much as it did me, our last month was full of soft kisses, tears and late nights holding each other. She clung to me every night as if her last breath depended on me, but in the end, she felt we had to part. The mission ended quietly. Good missions do. They end in a quiet knocks on doors rather than loud gun battles. A quiet debrief or two. That's all. And a broken heart.it was six years before I saw her again. I was just finishing my daily summary when the phone rang. She obviously expected me to remember her voice. All she said was, We need to meet at Walter Reed Hospital. In the entrance lobby. As soon as you can get there. Then she hung up. I ran a quick Google search and headed out the door, telling my secretary I had an emergency. When I transitioned from military to civilian, I'd taken Donna's position along with her secretary. Donna had moved up as well. I still worked for her, but now I oversaw the operations. I found her in the center of the busy lobby, posture still straight, but her hair now shot through with iron gray. It looked good on her. Her expensive tailored outfit screamed. Senior government official. Even if the bodyguard standing slightly off to her left hadn't been so obvious. He was trying to keep his line of fire clear of a tall woman in a suit and a shorter woman in an overly colorful skirt and blouse. I could see his hackles rise as I headed straight for my collar. I kept my hands in the clear and nodded as I walked up. Deputy Director. She gave a terse smile. A hair more polite than the first time we met. I may learn slowly, but I do learn. She paused, a shadow passing over her face. Emma. Emma got hit by a car bomb in Turkey a month ago. I felt my heart stop. She will live. She's in an induced coma while they repair everything. She lost her right leg to the knee part of her right hand and she will have to have plastic surgery on the right half of her face. She will live, but... I'm sure she said something else. She may have talked on for a while, but I was no longer listening. She had the brightest blue topaz eyes I'd ever seen she was peering around a rainbow-scattered skirt, from under a mop of dark curls, held back by a pink ribbon dot I know how the moth feels. I didn't think about it at all, couldn't think. I stepped over to her and knelt down. F. 
Off the expensive suit. I wasn't sure my knees would hold me up any longer anyway. Somebody else started to say something, but neither of us could hear it. Eyes locked in wonder. I knew. She knew. She spoke first. Where have you been? Chasing bad guys. But I'm done now. They won't let me see mommy. That's because they don't know tough you are, sweetheart. She reached her hand over to take mine. Rainbow skirt stared at us with an expression of horror. I stood up. Where's Emma's room? The elevator ride up to Emma's ward was an experience. Ellie. Her name was Ellie. And she was brilliant. Point five years old. She loved gymnastics, horses, and mango smoothies. Everyone else had sensibly stopped talking. By the time we reached the top floor, we were inseparable. Even Rainbow Skirt seemed to acknowledge it. I picked her up and headed straight for Emma's room. A nurse moved to block us, but the bodyguard waved her off. I felt Ellie tense and gasp in my arms as we entered. Emma was a mess. Bandages covered half her face, her left hand and what was left of her left leg were bundles of bandages. Four bags, oxygen, and a half dozen hissing and lightly beeping machines crowded the end of her bed. I lifted Ellie up to lay against Emma's right side. Mommy's asleep, but I think she could use a good, long snuggle. Ellie smiled and curled right up against Emma. I turned back to the deputy director. Why now? She paused for a thought. Kathy and Monica's power of attorney runs out in a week. And Emma's parents are seeking custody. Emma would hate that. And against that kind of money, only the biological father would be sure to win, right? She nodded. Not that I am in the habit of explaining myself to anyone other than Congress, but she swore me to secrecy. Leaving you hurt her more than she would ever admit to anyone, but I could see it. She was trying to do the right thing. The right thing, I thought, would have been to marry me and live happily ever after. This wasn't the time or place to argue that, though, she continued. It may be a fight. Emma's father is using his money to cause problems. Kathy and Monica were refused at the last minute when they tried to renew their lease on their apartment, so they have to be out next week. Monica's bakery has had four inspectors from different agencies in the last week. I am putting a stop to that, but it won't be long before he moves against her suppliers. Rainbow skirt and suit, Monica and Kathy I presumed, stared at me. I decided to address them and get it over with. I am sure you don't trust me. I held up a hand to forestall argument. And why should you? You don't know me at all. So here's what I can offer. My farm is down the green line. My house is plenty big enough for everyone. It's an old farmhouse with six bedrooms, not counting the basement. You can stay rent-free until Emma wakes up or you decide to move out. Monica stayed tight-lipped, but a grim-faced Kathy spoke up. Deal. Just so we can watch over Ellie. We promised Emma we would. And we don't have a lot of options. I suppressed a smile when I realized that Kathy had been Emma's partner in the art studio. She eyed me suspiciously, but I decided not to broach the subject. Besides, Monica might not know and I didn't need any more drama. I explained where the farm was and wrote down directions. She said they would come over after picking up some clothes from home. The electricity to their apartment had mysteriously shut off last night, and they couldn't seem to find anyone to turn it on. Monica fixed me with a hard stare. Don't get any ideas. Lose any weird male fantasy about the two of us walking around in panties all day. I have somewhat more important things to worry about now than your choice of underwear. I went back in to see Ellie. She was sitting up waiting patiently, gently stroking the side of Emma's face, while the nurse looked on in a near-heart failure. Are we going to live with you now? I couldn't help but smile. Little rabbits have long ears. She grinned, a real grin that I pulled out my phone and pulled up a picture. I could use some help with Frankie. She craned her neck to look at the picture. He's so cute. He's a pug, isn't he? He's a little goober. And he could use a friend. She giggled up by the time they reached the house. It was nearly 9 p.m. The two women walked in slowly looking around cautiously, but Ellie just sprinted past them screeching to stop just in front of me, almost nose to nose with a wildly wagging Frankie. That was truly love at first sight. Within seconds they were playing happily on the floor. Kathy and Monica relaxed a tiny bit as I showed them around the house, a great rambling structure dating back to just after the Civil War. I'd ended up inheriting it and 72 acres from my grandfather due to my interest in history, while my siblings had been given more land. I sold 30 acres of the land to finance restoring the house to its former gracious beauty. I'd updated it a bit in a lot of small ways that weren't obvious, but kept the historical ambience. We selected a room for Ellie next to mine, while Kathy and Monica's room would be on the other side of hers. There were a lot of adjustments to be made. Ellie had to get used to farm girl jeans, shirts and rather than dresses, frilly or otherwise. Kathy, and especially Monica, had to learn to trust me. A trust that was neither easy to build or along an obvious path. I think Monica finally decided I could be trusted when Ellie got a stomach virus and I stayed up all night with her, cleaning up. Vomit, changing sheets and holding her dot a few days later, while I was reading in the library. Well after Ellie had gone to bed, Kathy, then Monica walked very deliberately through the library. In t-shirts and underwear. They wore what were obviously brand new, Hello Kitty, underwear. A very considered gesture of trust. It was never repeated, but the meaning was very clear. We settled into a pattern. Every night, Kathy, Monica, or myself would stay for a few hours with Emma, listening to the machines. On Saturdays, Ellie would visit her for a few hours. Almost a month after Ellie had moved in, the court date for custody came up. Kathy and Monica walked to the front while I hung back, with Emma's boss that I finally saw Emma's parents, an exceedingly well-groomed man with perfect hair and a $5,000 suit, alongside of an aristocratic gray-haired woman in Barawang. They excluded wealth and power. And I could see why Emma had said she was surprised they'd managed to actually have sex to create her. They clearly disliked each other. After their lawyer wound down, I was gestured forward. Emma's father eyed me with surprise. Obviously his people had failed him, 
After all, they should have looked into why Kathy, Monica and Ellie had moved in with me. At the judges prodding I produced the DNA reports, and explained that Emma's misguided attempt to protect my career had kept me in the dark about Ellie. Their lawyer tried to recover. So your work presents a danger to the child? I shook my head. No, I no longer work in cover assignments. There will be no safety or instability issues. The deputy director went on record to support my assertion. I further explained that Kathy and Monica were willing to assist me until Emma recovered. The end judgment was essentially inevitable. Emma's father listened with the emotionless eyes of a shark, but her mother's blue topaz eyes seemed to radiate loss. As soon as the judge walked out, so did Emma's father, a cloud of assistants and lawyers trailing in his wake like debris pulled along by a current. Emma's mother stood in shock, just the driver standing next to her. I walked over. You are welcome to visit on Sundays. It's a farm though, so you'll probably want a pair of jeans and some boots. Call first. She looked at me gratefully, eyes welled with tears. Th. Thank you. I tried to raise Emma the way I had been raised, but her temperament was different. I know I made mistakes with Emma, but I didn't realize how much she resented, resented everything. Until it was far too late to fix. I'd like to be in my granddaughter's life, even if only a little. I gave her driver the address and phone number. The very next Sunday, she came by, after calling. And every Saturday after, Evelyn. Her name was Evelyn. And she was brilliant. She wore jeans, a little too new, and boots, a little too fancy and a plain t-shirt. And she showed up every Sunday. Without fail. Ellie took her on horse trails, picnics and build bonfires. Evelyn and her husband had not married for love they were essentially pushed together to build a dynasty. On the day they married, the DJIA jumped 253 points. But they basically lived separate lives and much to her husband's disappointment, Emma turned out to be an only child, due to his health issues rather than hers. After he gave her a social disease, her efforts to produce another heir ended. Divorce simply wasn't an option, the financial quake would have been disastrous. Evelyn had houses in France, Portugal and New York, but she realized what she had lost with Emma and was determined to make up for it. She added an apartment in Falls Church. She put her foot down to stop Emma's father from pursuing any more legal, or illegal, actions. She let him know that if he pursued it further, she would divorce him and let the damage be done. Which was fine with me, as my menu of options went quickly to the dark side of human nature. It was another three months before they let Emma fully wake up. And when she did we were there, Ellie sitting on the edge of her bed, me in the back corner of the room. Wordlessly, she pulled Ellie in close and held her for a very long moment, tears streaming. I stayed back while she hugged Kathy and Monica. I let them talk. Her clear blue eyes settled on me and widened. Her mouth formed a tiny O. Oh, finally. I'm so sorry. Kathy and Monica scooped Ellie from the room, leaving us alone together. Sorry for what? For not telling you I was pregnant. For not telling you about Ellie. I can understand. You were upfront about how you felt about our careers. You were trying to protect me as much as Ellie. I'm not saying it didn't hurt or that I'm happy to have missed her first five years. She obviously didn't know what to say to that and a silence began to build. She started again, hesitantly. I kept having dreams about you. I smiled down at her and sat on the edge of the bed next to her. I was here reading to you about three days a week for the last few months. I reached over and took her hand. She smiled softly, almost shyly. I missed you so much. I should have. She paused. I don't know. I don't know how to make this up to you. I shook my head. We'll have plenty of time to figure things out. Ellie will be glad to get you out to the house. She looked confused, so I had to explain about Kathy and Monica moving out to the house with Ellie. Her mouth tightened in anger when I explained about their lease, and dropped open in disbelief when I told her about Evelyn's visits. It didn't take much argument at all to convince her to move into the farmhouse, given the united front she faced with Kathy, Monica, Ellie and me. And we smuggled Frankie in to support our claim, which resulted in an epic chase through the halls and nearly got me banned from the hospital. Evelyn's status as a primary donor saved me too much trouble. It took a month of physical therapy before she could come home with us. It was four months before she moved to my room. A move Ellie pushed for with all her heart, and we were still. Us. Whatever chemistry we had was unbreakable. The scars and lost foot didn't matter to me at all, and that made Emma's path easier. She'd given up covert work because of Ellie, and now she accepted that she could no longer do field work. She began working in oversight and ended up working her way to EAD herself. The hardest part for Emma was accepting Evelyn. It was four years, and two more children before she trusted her completely. We ended up with two more houses on the property, Kathy and Monica's house, and Evelyn's. Evelyn never wears Vera Wang anymore, but her jeans are well broken in. She still has expensive taste in boots though. Ellie's first child, our grandchild, was only seconds old when I met her. Her name is Elisa. And she's brilliant. She has the brightest blue topaz eyes I've ever seen. She had the coldest blue eyes I'd ever seen. Almost clear, the color of the frozen heart of a glacier. They were flashing in quiet fury as she attacked. I could feel ice crystals on my heart as her voice cut and sliced with a surgeon's certainty. There was no trace of love or human affection in that voice. She couldn't even see me as I stood back in the darkened hall. Not that she ever really did. I was practically invisible to her even at the best of times and I was so rarely home from boarding school, or from vacations, really forced networking visits with the other thoroughbred offspring, that I honestly wasn't sure she would recognize me on sight if we ran into each other on the street. Not that she'd ever deigned to be simply walking down the street. Her victim stood stolidly, as if the words she spat were utterly meaninglessness, despite their gravity. He would never touch her again. There would be no other children. There would be no spare to the air. No spare to me. I was doomed to be the Reinhardt, 
Father blinked his expressionless eyes once, the only movement in his carved, stone face. Fine. She'll do. That was as close to emotion as I'd ever seen from Father. Practically an outburst of rage and fury for him, and that was what was expected of me. I'd been raised the scion of the greatest financial merger ever conducted. The Reinhardt had married the shining daughter of New York, the Reinhardt. It sounded positively medieval. And it was. The head of the Reinhardt merchant family was never referred to by his first name. Just as Das Reinhardt. And that tradition had held even as the merchants became bankers who became venture capitalists. That merchant house had turned into a domain so large that nobody was certain where, or even if, it ended that I'd been raised from birth to be at the helm of this vast enterprise. Private schools, tutors, the elite boarding schools of Europe. Mathematics, economics, and statistics were hammered into me as soon as I could read the words. Taekwondo had started at five years old. To teach me self-discipline, reflex thinking and prepare me the less obvious, but equally brutal fights of the financial world. From the beginning, my life and my classroom instruction was designed to prepare me to become a corporate lawyer. In this world, financiers and economists could be bought by the handful. Lawyers were problematic, like Machiavelli's mercenaries. A bad one could ruin you and a good one could prove too ambitious. But they were necessary, so the Reinhardt apparent would train in law. To watch over the lawyers.so my future was mapped out practically from birth. And I hated it. I had no idea what I wanted, but it wasn't this. A life of nearly absolute privilege and power. A life with no meaning at all. Raised by servants who changed out constantly. Ignored by mother. Who became Evelyn to me when I inadvertently learned what a mother was supposed to be like. She never earned that title. I almost never saw father. The Reinhardt was far too busy to bother with his only offspring. I suspected that he really wanted a son, but when he gave Evelyn a disease contracted from one of his many assistants, that possibility ended. She hardly cared about the affairs. After all, she had her yoga instructor and masseuse. It was his carelessness that turned her indifference to active disgust, and I'd seen the corrosive influence of money at that level. It ruined everything. Everyone. Trust was impossible. Love even less so. So at 13, standing in the teak paneled hall outside the study, I learned that my dream of possibly escaping my fate was shattered. Oh, I rebelled in small ways. I eventually managed to lose my virginity to a Norwegian ski instructor and found a birth control pill pack on my bathroom sink the next day. I couldn't find the instructor again. Every small rebellion was neatly countered or ignored. Prep school led to college, which led to the elite law school. My future loomed like an iceberg, every bit as scheduled by them. I did well. I was the Reinhardt to be. My early schooling and discipline paid off as expected. I studied hard. Research, logic, law. Top of my class and all of it. Of course, but I kept fighting it. Secretly looking for a way out. I'd almost caved during law school. I'd met a guy. He was funny, clever, smart, and managed to push all my buttons just so. I confided in him about my distaste for the life I was headed into. He listened to me and seemed to be completely understanding. He pondered whether I would be able to make that life into something I would love, despite everything. And he sounded so damn reasonable and clever. And he turned out to be working for the Reinhardt. I never did find out if they sent him or simply turned him after we became involved. That was when I realized that I could never trust anyone. Anyone might be working for them. And even if they started out with the best of intentions, eventually, the money would corrode their souls, just as it did everyone.so I kept sharpening my skills and working to be the best. I turned out to be best of all at acting. Pretending to give in. I played alone, looking for an escape route somewhere to take shelter, somewhere their money wouldn't have power. When I graduated law school, I told them that I needed to pass the bar in New York, where the world of finance was centered, and then I would need several months, maybe a year and a half, to prepare to step up to the position they were holding for me. As expected, I passed the bar on my first try. They were in no hurry and suspected nothing. I moved into an apartment and practiced not having money, and promptly learned I didn't know anything about living unsupported. I ruined half my clothes figuring out how to do laundry. And cooking? I lost 10 pounds in the first month, and in that first month I decided I needed to do something to fill my days while I looked for my escape. A flyer in the lobby caught my eye. LPN classes, and like everything else, I was damn good at it. It was a great way to learn about normal people, and learn to be normal. More than anything, I found I enjoyed it. I was finishing up my last practicals, like many internships in different hospitals when I found my escape, a shootout downtown had netted two killed and three wounded. Most were gang members, but one of the wounded was an FBI special agent. Brought to our hospital.to badly paraphrase Hans Gruber. I was looking for a miracle and found the FBI. The almost incorruptible FBI. I submitted an application immediately and waited patiently for it to process. I never seriously considered they might reject me. I never failed at anything. And I drove myself relentlessly to be ready for the fitness tests, took lessons at gun ranges with every conceivable type of firearm. One of the instructors I hired with the Reinhardt's money was retired from the FBI. Another was former Delta Force. B. By the time my academy class rolled around, I was as ready as humanly possible. The other students were typical overachievers, full of attitude and drive. The top of their classes, the football stars and volleyball players, the cheerleaders and a few from the chess club. But they weren't thoroughbreds and we didn't mesh smoothly at first. I tried. I honestly tried to fit in, be one of the pack. It went wrong on the third day. I don't know if it was something I did or said wrong, but someone learned something. I heard whispers of, rich bitch, and found myself isolated. Maybe they thought I'd get lonely and drop out. Fuck them. They had no idea what loneliness was. I'd grown up lonelier than they could dream. That isolation lasted for weeks. Their attitude changed after our first sparring match in our fourth week. The instructor had watched us closely. 
he recognized my style and my ability. I stand five foot three inch if I stretch up a little. So when we matched up, he put me against the biggest, strongest guy in the class and winked at me. That match lasted 23 seconds. My second match was almost a full minute. By the next day, my nickname had changed from Rich Bitch to Danger Mouse, and I got grudging respect. I was included, if not loved. It was the warmest feeling I'd ever had. Six weeks of being part of a team. At graduation, I discovered my deception had failed. A hand carved rosewood box was delivered to my room with a bottle of 1928 Krug champagne. That had to be Evelyn, for appearance's sake, of course. The Reinhardt had never given a gift in his life. I went home to face the music before taking my place in California. It was not a pleasant meeting. The Reinhardt was silently furious, Evelyn coldly so. And I had a $20,000 hangover and an empty bottle in my luggage. Suffice to say, by the end of the 15 minute discussion, I was disowned. I wordlessly left the study, rounded up my unpacked luggage, and walked out. Whatever fantasies I had about being a special agent evaporated quickly. At first, it was endless rounds of paperwork and meetings. But it was somehow more real that way. I was good at paperwork, planning, putting the pieces together. It was several months before I was included in any real operations beyond the usual low level cases entrusted to junior agents. And it was entirely because of blind luck and my own awful cooking. I was passed a message that one of the principals in one of my cases was being picked up. I was passed a time and an address and I headed out. Funny thing about case numbers. Get one digit wrong and everything cascades from there. Wrong agents get sent to the wrong places. So when I showed up and found the hostage rescue team command van sitting silently at the edge of a neighborhood I knew wasn't right for the harmless embezzler I was building a case against, I put on my apologetic junior agent face and went to give them the bad news. The wrong agent had been sent. The inside of the van was electric. Cold-faced agents in armor looking at floor schematics and heatedly discussing plans. Backup plans and backup plans to those plans. The whole scene put me in mind of wolves preparing for the kill. I spent a lot of my evenings watching Discovery Channel. I looked around for anyone at all I recognized. Nobody. I waited quietly, expecting some to ask me what I was doing, then I'd give them the bad news. Finally, the bald guy who seemed to be the hub of the activity zeroed in on me with no warning. Who the holy fuck are you? I tried to explain, but he cut me off with a furious exasperation. Sweet Jesus save me. Does your mama know you're here? And does she know you had to cross the street to get here? Amusement raced through the room. But I noticed one older agent with a steel gray crew cut sitting laconically on a map table looking at me expectantly. Probably waiting for me to cry. The Reinhardt in me surged. Yes, asshole, she sent me to drag you back to the nursing home for your geritol and your nightly enema. The bald man turned into a red beacon of anger. But before he could say anything, the gray crew cut spoke. Dave, wait. Dave turned and looked at him. Mike? Crew cut looked at me, turned around. Something in his voice convinced me to do it without asking why. What do you weigh? 115. Maybe on a good day. Your clothes are loose. I bet you're around a buck five right now. That was probably true. My cooking hadn't improved much. I was eating a lot of salads. Mostly because I either undercooked or carbonized everything else. I nodded. He eyed me critically. She'd fit through the window with that skinny ass. We could go for the dream option. Whatever the dream option was, Dave was hesitant. She's not HRT. If this goes wrong, we'll be grabbing our ankles for the director. Mike smiled, a grim smile. Nothing will go wrong. This is Danger Mouse. Jorge at the Academy told me about her. Economy size kick ass in a fun size package. To me. Aren't you? I straightened up. Whatever this was, I wasn't going to miss it. That's me. Nobody was willing to argue with Mike. The target was a known pedophile who was believed to have kidnapped a two-year-old from a parking in a nearby town. He'd been communicating across the internet with another man, in Britain somewhere, and telling him how he had her in his basement. And he'd said outright that before anyone could have her back, he'd kill her. The only possible outside access to the basement was a tiny window that used to be a coal chute. The dream option was to have an agent in the basement to protect the little girl when the HRT came in the front door. But the window was far too small for any of the door kickers. Too small for most adults. Except maybe an underfed danger mouse that I soon found myself squeezing through the tiny opening. And dropping into the pitch black of the basement with a tiny flashlight and a compact .45 that Mike insisted I swap out for the Bureau Standard .40 caliber. Mike was certain the Bureau Standard wasn't powerful enough to absolutely ensure a first shot kill.so armed. I searched the darkness that IT smelled of mildew, damp rock and dust. Even with the flashlight, the dark pushed in like a black velvet blindfold that I found her huddled under a blanket in the corner across from the stairs. I reached for her, to tell her I was here, to whisper that she was safe. I gently rolled her to face me, holding the flashlight just so. She had the coldest blue eyes I'd ever seen. Clouded over, pale, almost white. Unblinking, unseeing. Like ceramic. Fine blue porcelain. Her head lolled unnaturally as I shifted her, exposing the cord of black bootlace maybe cutting into her neck. I don't know how long I crouched over her. Motionless. I know what the official report says. But time had stopped as I stared at her broken doll form with her broken doll face. And those blind, porcelain eyes. A sound called me back to the basement tomb. And a dim yellow light kicked on overhead, near the creaking wooden stairs. I turned toward the stairs, straightening up. At first, he didn't see me in the gloom. He stood on the bottom step. A wood-handled hammer loosely held in one hand. His pale blonde hair backlit in a halo by the brighter light from above. Then he saw me, silently standing, gun leveled at him. His eyes lingered on the badge at my belt for a moment, and he let the hammer slip from his grip, then stepped carefully away from it, 
hands raised. I knew there was something I was supposed to say, the prelude to his arrest, his trial, his incarceration. It just wouldn't come. Then his gaze drifted to the crumpled form in the corner. And he smiled, perfect white teeth just visible to me. I can't remember pulling the trigger. But I saw the shock in his eyes as he realized he was going to die. I try so hard to remember that look when my nightmares come. I treasure it. The HRT hit the door upstairs a fraction of a second later. They came on relentlessly as the sound of my shots echoed and died. Moving down the stairs like a machine, a single coherent beast with blinding arc light eyes and gun oil tainted breath. A black Kevlar scale dragon. A killing machine with nothing to kill. Kurt calls of. Clear! Snapped back and forth through the house. The HRT leader's helmet came off as he scanned the basement. It was Mike. He took the whole scene in with one careful scan. He could see the whole story as if he'd been standing there when it happened. I stood, convicted by my own actions, waiting for him to demand an explanation. An explanation I didn't have. It was obvious he knew everything. His right foot reached out and slid the hammer next to the dead man's hand. He looked me dead in the eye. Quietly. We heard you identify yourself and order him to drop the weapon. He advanced with weapon in hand and you fired twice for effect. He glanced down at the dead monster at the bottom of the stairs. Then looked back up at me. Stick to the script. Nobody ever questioned the reports. I could see Mike's hand in it. I never felt a hint of guilt. The mandatory psychiatric counseling sessions dug deep into my feelings over the shooting but they never asked the real question. And why dreams were haunted, over and over, by the cold blue porcelain eyes of a child. But I was the favored daughter now. A month after the mandatory post-shooting cooling-off period was over, I was selected for special training for covert assignments that I'd never seen training like it. Terribly realistic. Viciously effective. The pressure was unrelenting, exhaustion so complete I didn't dream at all. We were given psychological exams every week. I'd been raised to be the Reinhardt apparent, and nobody was mentally tougher than I. But even for me it was a seemingly endless series of challenges. Sleepless nights in all kinds of weather and terrain, constant interrogations, round after round of close combat training. None of it even remotely like the normal step-by-step, safety-first standard training. I reveled in it with teeth bared. Even if they were bloody occasionally, the last test was devastating. They'd pulled the biggest fear from my evaluation and loaded it into the rape scenario. When I was twelve I was caught in a riptide. My weakness against that overwhelming power was addressed again and again in my evals. As was my helplessness in the face of my parents' choices. A synchronicity of fears the psych evals picked up on. And those fears were weaponized against me. When the rape scenario began, I was taken down by overwhelming strength. My opponent had been chosen for his sheer power and briefed thoroughly on how to take me feel helpless. How to be the riptide.it was terrifying. But I had an ace in the hole. The riptide was an old, fading fear. My nightmares were dominated by cold blue eyes. I could at least fight the riptide, and I did dot and my opponent had a boxer's chest, a wrestler's abs and the pain threshold of a battle tank. He'd taken my best kicks and still knocked me on my ass. He was injured. He had several broken ribs and his groin had to hurt like hell. But he was on his feet, hands in the classic hammer, and knife of a shotokan expert. Standard, bullet-headed, old-school Japanese karate. Solid, powerful, and heavy on the sweeps. As my hip reminded me that I was done. I couldn't really fight on this hip injury. And he knew it. I could see the dearly bought respect in his eyes, but he began to move implacably to my weak side. But that wasn't my biggest concern. I'd seen something earlier in those eyes when he had me pinned. Against all logic we'd connected over the realization that we were players in an insane scenario. That it was all a game. And for a fraction of a second, I'd felt more real human warmth than I'd felt my whole life. That precious moment cost him the injured groin and snapped ribs. But it had cost me more. We'd connected in a way that scared me more than the fear that this scenario might actually allow raw rape. I could still fight that. I might lose, would probably lose, but I could, and would, struggle to the end. But that connection felt too, something, to fight. I'd kept men and women at arm's reach all my adult life. Who knew who my relentless parents might send? Professionals, convincing, perfect, people who could make anyone's heart skip a beat. Or they would simply buy anyone I connected with. Their kind of money could buy so much. Despite everything, I wasn't convinced Father and Evelyn had given up on making me the Reinhardt.at the end of the scenario. When he carried me to the infirmary, the magnetism was overwhelming. I caught myself starting to nestle into him, and just managed to turn it into a neck stretch. He'd given me his shirt in a gesture of chivalry, so my arm rested on the bare skin and muscle of those shoulders that we bantered a bit while waiting for the doctor. The connection just got stronger. Some kind of indisputable chemistry, way more than just lust. If there'd have been a door on the room, I'd have broken the rules in a big way. A few more minutes and I'd have stopped caring about the door. The doctor arrived just in time. After I got my crutches and started off, I looked back and saw him watching me. Part of me wanted to go back give him my real name. Part of me wanted to flee as fast and as far as possible that I kept his shirt and slept in it. I didn't even wash it for a month. That should have been disgusting, but it wasn't. He was far away, far enough for me to allow myself a tiny fantasy or two of a normal life. The dots of our blood mixed on the shirt were a symbol of something that could have been, maybe, in a different world that I ended up washing the shirt in hot to set the blood. I'd learned the hard way about that dot it'd be two more years before I saw him again dot I in those two years. I proved myself over and over that I wanted to be the best agent ever born. I had the upbringing, the ability, and the ambition to pull it off, and chasing those cases helped keep my own demons down. Those dreams of porcelain blue eyes became fewer and fewer, but never went away, and always woke me with a hard cold hand gripping my heart. I worked hard. 
and I had support. I knew Mike had given me the nod, which carried tremendous weight. I ended up assigned to headquarters. I mostly worked organized crime. It's not as sexy as counterterrorism, but because of narcotics, the work is endless. But it wasn't all drugs. I spent six weeks working as a waitress in a San Angelo bar when I helped take down one of the largest cattle rustling rings in history. We cooperated with the Texas Rangers to do it. They're a great organization. But cattle rustling? Texas? Rangers? Um, well, yeah, howdy. Some smart ass stuck a dime store cowboy hat on my cubicle wall. But I have the real thing, along with a pair of sparkly boots, jeans, a western shirt, and a bandana at my apartment. I kept my waitress uniform. I was nearly killed in a gunfight in Canada. Over cheese. And maple syrup. It's a thing there. Cheese is heavily taxed in Canada, believe it or not, so crime rings smuggle cheese north and unlicensed syrup south across the U.S. border. For weeks of freezing my ass off, wearing flannel shirts and sleeping in a shitty room above a Canadian pizzeria. It went sideways just before we served warrants and ended in an actual honest-to-God gun battle. With me running alongside of a Royal Canadian Mounted Police Sergeant in a cheese warehouse. Those are people who take their mozzarella deadly serious.as for my personal life. I simply didn't have one. I buried myself in my work. I didn't have a life outside. I couldn't trust anyone not to be corrupted by the Reinhardt's money. The closest thing I'd had to a relationship was a few drunken gropes with another agent, Cat, short for Catherine while we were undercover as a lesbian art dealer couple. I didn't take it seriously at all. An all-female prep school practically guarantees experience in those kinds of relationships. But for Cat, it was life-changing. She never considered that her recurrent problems with relationships was because she was actually gay. She left the agency and ended up with a permanent girlfriend. Monica. Who owns a cupcake bakery. Seriously. And wears way too much tie-dye. Actually, any tie-dye is way too much. But she carries it to a true extreme. Still, they seem more than a little happy together. Monica tried to freeze me out when she learned of Kat's history with me, but in the end, she realized I wasn't a threat. I didn't do relationships. I didn't even have any real friends other than Kat and Monica, and I kept them at a bit of a distance. Still, work was great. I'd shown a knack for planning and execution, courtesy of my upbringing, and it was recognized in by most of the people I worked with. More than that, I was a fanatic, relentlessly driven. I was blind to it until I ran into Mike in the hall outside the office. Danger Mouse. Only the HRT members use that name anymore and they tinted it with a little respect. I gave a small grin. Mike. Here you've been doing the good work. I knew you'd make good. I knew you were one of us. He paused, looking serious. Keep it up, mouse. Somebody has to slay the monsters. One of us. One. Of. Us. That hit like a sledgehammer. Mike wasn't just an agent. He was head of HRT. A paladin. A knight in shining armor. A true believer. In every possible sense of the word. That's what he meant. And I realized he was right. I'd stop doing the job for myself. Or for its own sake. My ambition was still irrepressible, but there was more now that I really believed. For the first time in my life, I'd been following a dream of a better world. So life went on at full tilt, until one day when I was in the weight room working out, and an older white-haired woman started jogging on the treadmill next to mine. I didn't really look at her. Somebody's secretary from her demeanor. Still, she ran well. So I hear you're the golden girl around here. Maybe the next Hawthorne I hear. Maria Hawthorne was the executive assistant director. I'd heard her name thrown around. The EAD was a legend. The toughest bitch on the planet. Supposedly congressmen stepped lightly around her. And it wasn't all political. Early in her career she'd take down drug rings and white slavers relentlessly. I don't know if it was true, but rumor had it she'd personally killed eight men. I shrugged. Maybe, but if it means I end up trapped in an office? That's not for me. We chatted on for a few minutes, harmless pleasantries for the most part. And I forgot all about it by the time I ended the day. I was right. She was somebody's secretary. Maria Hawthorne's. A week later as I entered the EAD's outer office I knew I'd been set up when I saw the secretary. She just smiled and nodded me on in. I'd been summoned with little ceremony, just a yellow memo that appeared on my desk. Tall, thin, with dark brown hair and an almost severe style, the EAD was standing to the side of her desk when I came in. She extended a hand. Nice to meet the next me. Or so I hear. I prepared to graciously talk my way of that, but she cut me off with a smile. Let's take a walk, Emma. She led me out the door and down out of the building. Within a minute or two, she had us outside and headed south in the general direction of the Smithsonian. We walked silently for a minute until we were out of area. Mike recommended you. For what? This problem I have. I bounce problems off of him sometimes. He's good at giving me perspective. I picked up the vibe that her relationship with Mike was a little more than work-related. I checked on her when I go to summons and learned she was unmarried. And I knew Mike was a confirmed bachelor. I let that pass. And she continued. We have a case. The team that was working on it brought it up to me this morning. It's a perfect bureau plan. Looks great on paper. And I hate it. The Romanian network we're tracking has dodged this kind of stuff before. It's a different leverage point in the network. But we've come up empty on these guys too many times for it to be coincidence. These are really bad people moving really nasty weapons, and if we don't get it rounded up, there are going to be a lot of dead innocent people. A vision of blue porcelain eyes flickered in my mind. So what's my end of it? I want to use non-bureau assets. These guys may have some Russian FSB contacts, or maybe they understand us too well and can predict us. Or... She stopped. Or... Or we've sprung a leak. There's a lot of money in this game. Even the FBI isn't perfect. Silence hung in the air as I put it together. She spelled it out. You can't be bought. I know about your parents. 
You could walk out of here any day and have more money than the rest of us put together. I'm sure they take you back. Still about the money, but she continued. That wouldn't be enough alone. Mike says you're the agent for this. Willing to do what it takes. Whatever it takes. And you've worked with a lot of external agencies and they thought highly of you. Not everyone works and plays well with others. We paused for a minute as we came up on one of ubiquitous food carts that surround the Smithsonian Mall. She called for a couple gyros. I told the guy I wanted to see them made in front of us. Maria raised an eyebrow. I worked a euro cart in New York for three weeks on surveillance. They keep a bunch of ready-made ones behind the counter to save time. Could be hours old. Even a day or two. We found a bench and sat eating. I'm pulling the team off at the bureau. I'll tell them general counsel has advised to attack the other end of the network. The only bureau personnel in the know will be you, me, Mike, and my aide. I called in a favor with the director. I'm going to use an army activity. Cumulus Green. That didn't ring a bell and I said so. She shook her head. It shouldn't. They don't work U.S. domestic targets. Posse Comitatus. But I can get some of them loaned to us as assets under our control for counterterrorism. As technical assets only. I was doubtful and said so. A bunch of soldiers stomping around is probably worse than risking an internal leak. These aren't regular soldiers. The work cover assignments worldwide, mostly in the CT arena. They are some of the best. They have to be, where they operate, they are the bad guys. We're almost always one call away from the cavalry. If the cavalry comes where they operate, it's a really bad moment. Really capable, but they aren't police, federal or otherwise. Last time we used one, the op went bad and the cumulus asset picked up the SACE gun and killed three drug runners without trying to take them into custody. General counsel went crazy over that. They aren't necessarily happy to be working with us again, and I had to get the director to throw some weight around. Well, that sounded great. Odds were high they'd resent the hell out of me. So are you in? Turning down this kind of offer would pretty much be a career ender. I finished my euro and looked around. I'm in. Cumulus Green was a small converted brick warehouse off the beaten path near Georgetown, with underground parking. The sign said, Calliope LTD, and looked harmless enough. But the parking attendant was the human version of a Doberman Pinscher, a study in alertness and restrained aggression. And so were the four internal guards we had to pass. A secretary checked our identification, called to ensure we were expected and buzzed us in. One of the security guards walked in with us. I don't know what I was expecting, but it pretty much looked like a standard office, not much different than mine. If anything, it was a hair more run down. The people were different. If the FBI was full of jocks and cheerleaders, this place was a haven for the kids who hung out at the far end of the parking lot. Smoking. They were dressed nice enough, standard author act DC government suits. A bit more individualistic than would be normal at the bureau. What really caught my attention was an edgy wariness as they tracked us coming in. Every single one of them watched us, even if not obviously. I got the impression that law enforcement officers of any flavor weren't their favorite people. We were escorted to an office with a conference table where a hard-looking woman in a severe suit greeted us. After Maria introduced all of us, she just responded with, You can call me Donna. Maria seemed to expect that though, and explained what we needed, and to my surprise, her suspicions of a potential compromise. Somewhere in the Justice Department. Donna gestured to her secretary to call Eric, who turned out to be a short, heavy-set guy. He asked me to go with him to see what the technical support I needed. Point three flights down, in the basement was Christmas. We passed a weight room, a firing range and arrived at a room that looked like Radio Shack had gone very, very bad. We had to step over cables, boxes, half-assembled computers to get to a set of shelves at the back. Every cutting-edge surveillance device invented, and some I'd never heard of. A lot of the stuff was not intended to be used within U.S. borders at all. Ever I was practically skipping back up the stairs, and found myself in the middle of an obviously tense moment, staring at a familiar face that a rush of feeling poured in, like some kind of schoolgirl crush. Somehow, a smart-ass module seemed to turn on in me and I found myself starting a series of wisecracks. He joined in immediately with a knowing look and a half-smile. Donna, seemed to be perfectly okay with the banter, Maria looked expectant, and her aide just looked lost. I decided I'd better sort out the confusion, and explained how we met, although I left out a detail or two dot, and I decidedly did not mention that my heart felt like it was exploding. The smart, logical portion of my brain was screaming, run, at the top its voice. But the rest of me had a very different opinion. When he agreed to work with me, that, had apparently been very much in doubt. I felt relief and fear in near equal measures. I asked Maria's aide for my folder of notes, sat down at the end of the table, and we began going over plans. By the time I looked up, Maria, Donna, and the aide had disappeared into another room. We were very professional, going over infiltration plans, setup, target prioritization. He was absolutely thrilled that I had an emergency extraction plan that might actually work. The hardest part would be the initial setup, and he worked on a personnel roster for that. It may sound a little insane, but legally, he'd be the only loan asset. His people could bring equipment in, set it up, but they couldn't turn it on or test it yet they could stand next to an FBI agent and tell them how to do that in real time. So I'd have to tell Maria to bring in two more agents to do that. He was professional, respectful, and absolutely distracting. Apparently he'd been down at the shore on leave when he was called in and didn't have time to do more that spray on a little cologne on the drive. So he smelled of cologne and that hot skin beach smell. And he had the most disconcerting habit of looking me directly in the eyes. Like I said, distracting. Be why the time we finished, we managed to tell each other very little about ourselves, although somehow I managed to communicate that I was not in any relationship and learn that neither was he. That didn't help my internal dialogue at all. Move in day to the Romanian neighborhood was an eye-opener. 
The Cumulus Green team was about as convincing as humanly possible. One couple erupted from their car arguing loudly and convincingly about his behavior at a party the weekend before. He'd been drunk and obnoxious the whole time. It was obviously a long-running and bitter dispute between married couple, trying, just barely, to keep it together, and it was complete and utter crap. They hadn't even been teamed up as a couple until three days before. The equipment was set up easily, classic newlywed furniture was brought in, with classic newlywed jokes, loudly thrown around, and when my guy went to get pizza, he came back with pizza and beer for everyone, and drugstore flowers for me. It doesn't sound like much, and yes, it made sense as part of the cover. But it was literally the first time anyone had bought me flowers. And it must have shown on my face point one of the female CA assets looked me holding the flowers and stage whispered. Oh, looks like someone's getting some tonight. Oh yes. His eyes flashed in the dim light as he struggled with me as my weight pinned him to the top of the mattress. What modesty he had was only preserved by the light blue lace towel wrapped around his waist. That modesty wasn't going to survive long. As soon as I could trap both his wrists in one hand, I planned to rip the towel off of him. It was, honestly, proving to be difficult. He was very solid and he wasn't wasting time. But he was having a lot of trouble getting a grip on me. I'd made pretty good progress on my initial attack, catching him off guard in the darkness of the bedroom, dimly lit by a tiny orange LED night light. I'd yanked the shaving kit from his hand, no point in taking a risk while tackling him onto the bed. I'd pinning him down, straddling his body with my legs. He couldn't get a grip to throw me off, because I'd taken the precaution of stripping down and coating myself with lotion. We locked eyes for an instant, just a fraction of a second, and at that moment, I saw a slight smile on his lips. I could feel him grow hard against me between my legs. Then everything went right. The assignment went very well, Maria's faith in CG was entirely justified, and the two of us worked well together. Very, very well. I couldn't keep my hands off of him, and he was just as bad.at first I thought it was lust, but soon it was clear we had more than that. We shared our secrets, those that we could. I told him about my life and how I'd escaped becoming the Reinhardt. His life had been classic small-town America, with, as he put it, a hard right turn at Albuquerque that ended with him a team leader in Cumulus Green.i in many ways, he was a version of Mike, he was a believer. He'd get little praise and no recognition for his efforts but he might leave the world a cleaner space than when he arrived in it. At least that was his hope that I never did tell him about the corrosive power of the Reinhardt money and how it ruined everything it touched. That toxic fortune was the reason I couldn't just stay with him. Sooner or later, the Reinhardt's money would begin to move in and he would be spoiled and destroyed by it. I couldn't bear that thought. I admitted to myself that I was truly in love with him. There was no way I could watch the inevitable rot come for him. I let him think it was about my ambition and drive. I blamed the work. I tried to get him to blame me. I was clingy and needy, and even though he knew it was my choice, he was there for me. I felt like my soul was disintegrating. Then it got worse that I missed my period, and in the tradition of women and girls from the beginning of time, I prayed. I hoped. I held my breath, and it still didn't come. Working at the women's health clinic meant I had access to pregnancy kits at work. Plus sign that I'd been raised in the cold logic of the Reinhardt. I'd simply take care of it. Simple. Have a doctor remove a tiny mass of meaningless cells. Sure, that was the answer. Remove the. Me plus him. That I'd never planned on or even thought about that I'd never have a kid. Hell, the first time I actually babysat was right here on this assignment. Even if we were really married, who would want a bunch of messy little brats running around, like the ones he was so good with? The ones I'd had to snuggle with on the couch to get to sleep. The nightmare came that night for the first time since this assignment had begun. I would never have believed the dream could be worse. The cold blue porcelain eyes turned to me as the head traced that unnatural path. But this time, her lips moved. And I heard her voice for the first time. Mommy, please! I woke, just catching the scream in my throat, trapping that anguish and smothering it to a whimper of pain. He stirred beside me, but didn't wake. I just lay there in a cold sweat for a minute, then edged out of bed crossing the dark room on uncertain legs that I slipped into the bathroom, racing from the urge to wake him, to tell him. I shut the door and sat heavily on the rim of the tub. As the nightmare faded, I kept repeating to myself I that was doing the right thing, for me and him. Our careers, our lives weren't right for this. I feared his corruption by the Reinhardt more than anything. Besides, it was just some cells multiplying, not a human in any sense. I finally calmed enough. I stood to leave and glanced toward the medicine cabinet. I saw the woman in the mirror staring at me. She had the coldest blue eyes I'd ever seen. Almost clear, the color of the frozen heart of a glacier. The mission ended. It didn't make headlines, but the headlines that mattered were the ones that never had to be printed. That mission should have set my career forever. I stood in Maria's office, all too obviously pregnant. I'd avoided her for two months after the initial debrief, then took three months of the endless leave I'd accrued, citing a need to recover from the mission. So now I stood, obviously pregnant, waiting for her to disown me for my personal failure. She cocked her head to one side. So, have you told him? It all spilled out my fears, nightmares, everything. She just stood and led me to sit on her couch and let me cry it out on her shoulder. I in the end, although she didn't agree with me in my decision not to tell him, she supported me. She argued I was too valuable to lose. I was moved out of covert assignments and assigned to counterterrorism planning. A massive step up. Kat and Monica were godsends. The two of them even coached me during delivery. Although I think we all forgot the whole breathing thing. They handed me Ellie. She had the brightest blue sapphire eyes I'd ever seen. Almost surreal. They were full of warmth and love. Working in CT plans meant I was home most of the time. And when I wasn't Kat and Monica were there for us that I thought about calling him almost every day. But I still feared them. And how they would ruin him. 
I loved him too much for that. I no longer had the dreams of cold porcelain eyes, but I crept down the hall to Ellie's room several nights a week. To check on her, to hold her. To make sure she isn't huddled in her blanket in a corner. Years passed. Ellie grew. I don't remember anything about Istanbul. I was there for three weeks and two days. I remember getting on the plane, thinking that when I came back it would be time to get Kat and Monica a new power of attorney. Then I remember waking up in the hospital, staring at all of them. Especially him. He wasn't angry with me, saddened by the loss of time with Ellie. But people in our world can be pragmatic to a fault, so he understood why. Or at least he understood the reasoning I gave him. It would be years before I could tell him the whole truth. I must have retained stuff from the long twilight sleep. The lost leg wasn't a surprise. But when I heard about Evelyn, I nearly screamed in terror. But when she came in, she was different. She had on blue jeans. Her icy arrogance was completely gone, and she had the saddest blue eyes I'd ever seen. Almost clear, the color of endless tears. I'd never heard her apologize. Ever. For anything. Until now. She begged not for forgiveness. She felt she didn't deserve any. She just wanted a chance to participate in Ellie's life. A chance, even a small chance, for redemption. I gave strict terms. And watched her like a hawk. She'd already warned off the Reinhardt, threatening to tear down his world if he didn't stay away forever. She still cheated a little. He thinks the sword hanging over the fireplace that she gave him for his birthday is replica of Napoleon's sword from the battle at the bridge of Lodi. It isn't a replica, but only Evelyn and I know that. It's been so many years. Yesterday, I held my granddaughter for the first time. Her name is Elisa. And she's brilliant. She has the brightest blue topaz eyes I've ever seen.